Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamari, Managing Director of Elkut Global. It is my great pleasure to have a great guest, as always, must I say, with us today. We have Susan Johnson, who I will briefly introduce. She's the Executive Vice President of Global Connections and Supply Chain for AT&T. She's responsible for AT&T's international and domestic strategy and partnership development for network connections. And she leads the supply chain functions within AT&T Communications, supporting the entertainment group, business services, technology, and operations. Her team manages uh, strategic sourcing, purchasing, supply diversity, sustainability, and supply chain logistics, and jointly is responsible for a spend portfolio of over $70 billion that covers all of AT&T's networks and goods services domestically and internationally. Also, Susan has a fantastic career. She's had a multitude of roles, very diverse background. She's done from finance to customer information services to investor relations. And in the last couple of years, she has been more focused on supply chain as well as now uh, as Executive Vice President of Global Connections. So, Susan, pleasure to have you. Great privilege and thanks for making the time. Yeah, Radu, thanks for having me. Certainly an interesting time to be talking about supply chain, that is for sure. Yeah, never a dull moment. You know, if, if one thing doesn't pop, another thing does. So it's, it's um, well, hopefully some, some of us sleep, but uh, yeah, it's an exciting time. <laughs> it is. Maybe let's start, Susan, first and foremost. Tell us a little bit about your background because quite eclectic, quite varied. You've seen so much, right, from different facets of the business. And I, I guess I want to link it because our audience is mostly supply chain. I want to link it to how has that helped you in the supply chain role and portfolio that you have meant and maybe walk us, you know, two, three minutes of a long, long 30-year career. All right. Well, fantastic. I'll try to boil it down. You know, Ryder, you didn't mention it, but I started my career in investment banking and uh, serving as an investment banker to the technology Silicon Valley. And so I think that experience, I'd say that from my roles as being a CFO, investor relations, business development and head of strategy, I kind of tie it down to three things. One, I think at my core, I'm a finance person. When you are managing the balance sheet with the kind of buying that we are, I think that skill is important. I also find that my strategic background really helps because I'm always coaching my team. We can't just think about what we're buying right now. We need to think about the strategic implications for the whole ecosystem of trying to keep enough diversity in kind of the supply of what we're buying. And then I love technology. We buy a lot of technology for the build out of our network and a lot of what we do. And so I kind of would say that my background centers around those three things and having some perspective on all three of them has been really helpful in my current job as supply chain. And I love this role out of all the ones I've done. It's never boring for all of your supply chain experts out there. It's hard to go a month without some sort of new crisis on the supply chain side, which I think really keeps it interesting. And the other thing I love is it's just such a broad perspective. It doesn't mean, uh, and I'm involved and we're thinking about what's the next device that we're going to be sourcing in the mobile side. How are we thinking about 5G deployment in the core of the network? To how are we thinking about benefits uh, sourcing and what's changing on the benefits side with all that's going on in healthcare? So it keeps it interesting, that's for sure. No, absolutely. And yeah, before we we deep dive in, in one of the those interesting factors, which is chip shortages that is currently affecting a lot of people, I'll just encourage everybody watching, post your questions in comments. I see quite a lot of people tuning in and we'll try to, to take it on board. So back to the topic, Susan, chip shortages is probably 
semicon shortages are probably one of the biggest struggles across the board, whether you're in electronics, telecom, automotive, and so on. How is AT&T coping with it? Well, so first off, Radio, I want to make sure I talk about AT&T. I think AT&T is working its way through it. And it doesn't mean that we're not all hands on deck watching this very closely. But we already had started out really close relationships with our underlying chip suppliers. So whether it's the Intels of the world, the Broadcoms of the world, we're spending a lot of time, and Qualcomm, of course, we're spending a lot of time with them. And I think that's given us a lot of the intelligence. Uh, You and I talked briefly earlier, you know, there are bigger shortages in some areas of the chipsets versus others. So we're getting much more thoughtful about how do we try to engineer and manage through to make sure that the chips we're going after are some of the ones with less of the supply demand gap. And then we are starting to make some long-term forecasts like I've never done before. Some cases we're looking at 50-week lead times for chipsets. And that means that we're spending a lot of time internal AT&T rolling out long-term forecasts for the CP in the home, a lot of the broadband equipment that helps us enable fiber for our customers on the enterprise and the consumer side. So trying to get a long-term forecast locked in is is challenging right now, but we're spending a lot of time on that. So close collaboration with our suppliers, a lot of time spent with the chip designers, and then a lot of time focused on better planning and longer-term forecasts. But, but you know, I, I'll add, Radu, that I, this is one I'm really worried about. We, uh, I said earlier, we're all living through all of the crises of supply chain. You know, right now I'm looking at factory shutdowns in Vietnam is the latest one that I'm sure many of your people may be watching. But the semiconductor shortage is one that's longer term in nature because it just takes three years to build a fab and it costs billions of dollars and it takes a lot of very high end talent to be able to run those kinds of lines. So I'm very worried that this is not going to turn around even this year. For most of the forecasts we're seeing on just fab capacity, it looks like it's going to extend into next year. A lot of work going on with Secretary Mondo and the White House on figuring out what do we need to do within the U.S. to try to fund some new development in the semiconductor manufacturing space to try to geographically diversify ourselves with semiconductors as so much of that supply is coming out of Taiwan, which I think has been pretty well publicized. So I'm worried about it. We're also watching a lot of our IoT customers that with the car companies are trying to get some of the, you know, uh, longer, uh, older legacy chipsets. And those are probably where you're seeing the biggest gap. So I think this is going to be a challenging year for all of us as we are trying to work our way around, you know, this chip shortage. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, yeah, I li- unlikely six months is going to cut it. These are multi-billion dollar investments and moving supply chains is going to take take long. And I even was speaking to a large uh, electronics manufacturer. What they did is a kind of a way to, to work around it. And I'm going to bring them to the podcast. And I thought it was a fascinating case study. They brought the engineering team to look at chips that are kind of the chips that they need, but not sold out. So then they could they could redesign it a little bit or change a little bit or, you know, order that, that type of chip that they could replace without necessarily changing the whole production line, making some adjustments. And it was a way where engineering came in, 
work closely with supply chain. Usually they fight, but they work closely and then you know figured out a solution. So quite quite intriguing. So different solutions for different uh, times, I guess. Yes, I, I think in many cases it takes too much time to engineer around a chip to try to certify another one, Radu. But I, I think that's what I'm seeing a lot and hearing from my peer groups because I don't think this shortage is turning around anytime soon. Mm. Another point that I wanted to ask you, Susan, because COVID-19 very much disrupted the channels, right, for for AT&T and with lockdowns and, you know, pretty much malls and all the different shops being closed, that your retail channel was disrupted. You had to go direct to consumer model. You had to go also self-installation. Tell us a little bit of how you managed to adapt, because I think that's a that's a lesson in supply chain resilience, flexibility and versatility. Radu, I think it's a great question. I think there's so many supply chain professionals looking back right now as we're all learning a new definition of resiliency and agility, which is really the question of how quickly can you respond within the supply chain organization to these drastic changes uh, that are that I don't know, we all saw with COVID. So maybe I'll start out and talk a little bit about just some of the other changes at AT&T because it, it was very much of a, wow, big changes happening quickly you know, in a very short period of time where I do the products and services that our customers wanted changed pretty drastically. We had a surge in things like Wi-Fi hotspots and more people needing broadband connectivity in their homes. And so we had to really rethink how we got access to a lot of the equipment for broadband, for Wi-Fi, for mobile devices. And the second piece I'll touch on is that the capacity needs of our network really surged. We had about a 40% increase year over year in the capacity needs of our network. And some of that capacity was in areas that is different. It's not the downtown areas. It's very much of the metropolitan areas and the urban areas where people are working at home. And so a surge in demand to the tune of about 450, 450 petabytes of data on the average day on our network, which is absolutely huge for those of you that are aware of that. That's about 100 million two-hour long movies in high def. But then you said it. I think the biggest shift we were managing through is drastic changes in our product delivery model. And we were shutting down stores, uh, trying to keep our employees safe and trying to make sure that our customers were safe. But we still needed to get many customers some of these devices to keep them connected. So we moved very quickly to a direct fulfill model but we also opened up a whole new set of uh, opportunities for customers that wanted to buy online and then do more of a consult at the curb <laughs> to help them set up the device. And so um, get them um, in front of the store, outside the store, roll up in their car, get them the device, answer any of their questions and have them roll up with a device uh, that they're ready to then configure and set up. We also did a lot of innovation in broadband. Today, normally when you order broadband capability, we've got a technician that is doing work outside the home and then is walking into your home. In many cases, customers were not comfortable with these technicians coming into the house. So we started designing a self-install model. What does that mean? It means different packaging. Uh, it means better instructions, better labeling. How do you get that package into the customer home so that they can pull it out, open it up? Technician does the outside of the homework but that they can um, do that install on their own. And there's a lot of good learning. We've got a large segment of our population that is more tech savvy and is more comfortable setting up that broadband equipment in the home. And we learned a lot. 
And I, I think the great news is, you know, from before the pandemic to the currently, we more than double that direct fulfill experience with our customers. And so I think that many of the learnings on how do we meet the needs of our customers, how do we meet them where they want the product delivered and how they want the product delivered, we're going to hang on to. So some really good learning. No, absolutely. And uh, well, you're kind of changing your channels as you go. I guess if I'm to, to drill a little bit deeper, Susan, in terms of some of the learnings, and, and usually it's three things, right? It's, it's systems, it's or technology side, it's uh, processes, and it's people, right, that need to be adapted. So if you were to look back, what were the were there certain tweaks that you had to do in the supply chain? What was maybe the hardest? And what were some of the biggest lessons learned that maybe the audience can take away from? Well, I you know, I think if I go back and just say, what were the biggest lessons learned? I think the biggest lesson learned, and my team and I joked about it, is God help us, there's too many manual processes. <laughs> and under the guise of never waste a crisis, we are now going back and really investing in some of the technology and tooling that we need to get smarter into our supply chain. We started asking our suppliers and even their suppliers for all of those critical components that are really front and center for the supply chain to start reporting through a tool that we've set up where the manufacturing sites are and where the subcomponent manufacturing sites are. And that's been a really good tool for us to start to get out in front of some of the challenges that we've seen with COVID. So as an example right now, we talked about Vietnam shutting down many factories and sending their workers home for two weeks. You can imagine that that normally would have been a manual process. Okay, which suppliers? Who's in Vietnam? We just moved a lot of people out of China to Vietnam. Now we can actually go on the tool. The tool we're using is called Resolink, and I know there's a lot of them out there. We can get better information on what components and what pieces of equipment are actually being manufactured in Vietnam, get some sense of where we've got redundancy for other sites that we can start working with our suppliers to ramp up. So I, I would say looking back, the most important thing we learned is too many manual processes. We need better tooling. We need better data that, into that. How do I see further into the supply chain to get smarter and get out in front of some of these crises? Uh, that are con continuing to happen. I also think that we learned a lot about geographic diversity. Um, so as an example, if I've got um, two suppliers or even one supplier that is manufacturing in two locations, if they're both pulling a component out of the same factory, guess what? I'm kidding myself that I've got redundancy in my supply chain. One of the things that we learned going through this Resolink tool is that we had one supplier that was a, we were single, single threaded on that did power cables. Now, I, normally power cables are not on the critical list, although they're important, but to realize as we look deeper into our supply chain that we're single threaded on one supplier across a whole bunch of different equipment, uh, was kind of a good, good learning for us to get that better intelligence into the supply chain. Mm. And I'll pull a question that, that, that we got from memory. Which, which is asking in terms of partnerships, how have partnerships helped you to improve deliveries, increase capacity? I, I think it's also, she's also linking it to the fact that you had to kind of self-install and, and, and change the channels. Well, you know, it's a great question. One of the questions I do get is how did we work through and which what did I find were the most agile partnerships to work with? And the one I will talk about 
is our diverse suppliers. We spend a lot of money, about $13 billion last year with some of our minority owned, women owned businesses. And in some cases, these are some of our smaller suppliers. Some of them are large, but they're also sometimes the most agile. And so one of the things that I found quickly is that some of our diverse suppliers were the ones that were able to pivot the fastest to meet our demands for things like PPE. I had one diverse supplier that shifted from you know, alcohol to hand sanitizer, another one that helped us set up the whole supply chain for a lot of our PPE delivered throughout the world. And so I actually think it's been a great testament for what we've seen with some of our diverse suppliers and their agility to be able to help us respond to some of the big changes. Yeah, and sometimes the smaller are the, the more nimble and faster to adapt, the bigger you get, then sometimes it's a little bit more. Yeah, it takes a little bit more time. And since you touched on, on supply diversity, let's talk a little bit further about that. It's an increasingly important topic, and it's a topic that most companies pay a lot of attention to. How are you ensuring that that you have you have that right in your supply chain? How are you ensuring that you have all sorts of companies owned by various stakeholders and that you have that diversity at large? Yeah, it's a great question. One of the things that I love about working for AT&T is we tend to think not just with our head, so that's the finance and me, the profit model, but also with our hearts. And I think the supplier diversity program that we've set up at AT&T, I love it because it brings both parts together. It makes sense economically for AT&T, and I can have many examples to talk about that, like the one I just did and how quickly they pivoted for us. But also it, it is about us working with diverse suppliers to give more back into the community. AT&T's had a supplier diversity program set up for over 50 years now. And we've always had an objective of having over 21.5% of our spend with women and minority-owned businesses. And we have been consistently meeting that, which is a great success story. But at the 50-year anniversary of the supplier diversity program, a little over a year ago, We made some changes to that program to say, okay, still critical that we spend with these diverse suppliers because we're spending to help them give back into the communities. But we're going to ask all of our suppliers to start helping us make sure that some of that money that we are spending is going back into the community. So we've started to ask our suppliers about their diversity in their employment ranks, because I do think that for all of us, we measure it closely at AT AT&T. We want to make sure that our diverse suppliers and all of our suppliers are driving more diversity throughout the organization. That's an important one. We've also asked them to help us with technology training programs into the communities and fostering local hiring. And we've asked a lot of our diverse businesses to mentor another smaller diverse business so that we can get a broader range of diverse suppliers that we're working with. All of this trying to figure out how we One, grow new diverse suppliers, and two, make sure that the ones we're working with are giving back more into the community, both with hiring and with some of the educational opportunities. Mm. So as part of that, we um, we actually made a specific target last year, I do, to spend over $3 billion with Black-owned businesses. And we beat that, $3.1 billion, proud to say. And that's an area we're continuing to spend and work on growing new Black-owned businesses. So I think a good success story and something we're really proud of at AT AT&T, and I think um, something that helps us just function as a supply chain by the agility of this overall group. Mm. And you've seen it, you just talked about it, the fact that that some of these suppliers were actually the ones that were able to step in, scale faster, and, and help you when you needed the most in crisis. So it kind of 
reinforces there's a reinforcement loop in there for everybody listening in it, it makes also business sense it's not just a nice thing to do i also want to to ask on the on the side of data and, and sharing data and uh, and i think we kind of discussed in preparation for this right in terms of if parties don't share that information and sometimes the suppliers versus their clients uh, sometimes they their suppliers between themselves then you end up having excess inventory you end up having you know excess costs that you could have been avoided and that ultimately boils down to trust or lack of trust so i guess the question then becomes how do you build that trust within the supply chain parties that they they share and they know that it's safe to share and it helps everybody yeah Roddy, such a great question i think such a great topic for this podcast because I could use help from some of my supply chain partners out there to help us with what I call better intelligence deeper into the supply chain. I do think that if we can work together as an ecosystem, build that trust with our suppliers, build that intelligence, I think it will be really valuable. So as an example, we're on Resilink. The more other suppliers that are on platforms like Resilink, there are many out there, the better data that I get in terms of, okay, you know, this other supplier has already put in data for this supplier. And so we can leverage each other's intelligence, leverage each other's data. We can benchmark against each other. How much uh, geographic diversification do you have versus me, which I think makes us all better. But to get back to your question of trust, this is under the guise of never waste a crisis. 2020 was a painful year. And by all indications, 21 is going to be equally painful. So I am hopeful that the supply chain industry is going to harness this crisis to start doing what we are doing. I'm having conversations with virtually all of my significant suppliers and asking them, insisting that they give us data on where their manufacturing locations are and for where and where their critical components are coming from. Now, in some cases, taking a little arm twisting because there is this lack of trust. There is this belief set out there that given uh, that we have done some disaggregation work in parts of our supply chain, that we're going to go to these subcomponent suppliers and start disaggregating our primary suppliers. I've had to personally put my name behind it and my teams and AT&Ts to say, we need to build this trust. I need the information. You, We need to figure out how I get you comfortable providing this information. But I have this vision, Radu, that if we can get better intelligence, both on where those manufacturing locations are, and also about where inventory is being built up for critical components, we can get more efficient as an overall industry. So as an example right now, I'm sure many of your users are building up or our podcast listeners are building up buffers of stock right now and critical components. Depending on what kind of business you have, that may be in resin, it may be in different components of some of the chips, it may be in the actual chips. But I think if we as, as an industry can get smarter on, okay, I know that my supplier is building up their own chip buffer stock. I know that this particular chip buffer stock is sitting at this supplier. I know that I've got capabilities to use this piece of it. I think it might help us all to have better efficiency throughout the supply chain or we're not building up our own set of buffer stock on top of each other, which I think can often happen in the midst of a crisis. Mm. I'll pull this question as well. 
Now, I can't see the, the, the name, but anyways, the one, one of the listeners is saying, how has all these challenges affected the way you evaluate, assess your suppliers, right? Because I can imagine that there might have been some shifts. So I think good question to build upon your point, right? And, and tell us a little bit about this. I think it's a great question. You know, for those of us that have been in supply chain for a while, I often say that it's a teeter-tottering balance between a all-out focus on efficiency and cost to, I think, where we are, which is much more of a focus on redundancy and de-risking and, you know, thinking about where we can build up buffer stock for things. So many times I get the question, is that building costs into the supply chain? It is. I would tell you the conversations I'm having with many of our suppliers is less about how do we shave more costs out of this? How do we drive more efficiency in our delivery methods? And more about how do we put more de-risking into the supply chain to make sure that we're going to meet these dates? That may mean that we're making longer-term forecasts, we're building up longer-term orders. It may mean together that we are figuring out how to build up more strategic inventory in critical places. So I would say that the priorities for many of our suppliers, it is shifting, and we are having those conversations This year, I am far more worried about not having the components we need to meet our customers' demand or our build timing and than I am about being ruthless about costs. And I I would imagine that there's many of your podcast listeners that are in the same boat this year. Yeah, I think most of the people. But but that brings me, and I I want to bring the example of Toyota, and and it's maybe a good point. Many of uh, us maybe saw the... Bloomberg article, which kind of praised Toyota because they managed to to foresee the crisis that was was going to hit them on the cheap side, and they managed to have themselves covered. But okay, that boils down to two things in principle, or at least what I read from the article, and also what I know personally from the Toyota culture. One visibility, and you spoke about having proper visibility into your supply chain, not just tier one, tier two, but up to tier four, five, six, where you realize that oops, wait a second, I might have two different sources for component A, but those two sources source A1 from the same source. So actually, I don't have any <laughs> diversification, right? So they had that visibility, number one. I think number two, that what Toyota has done very well across, and this is across the years, it's not something that they built overnight. They built, maybe the trust element is is fairly consistent with them in a sense of, you know what to expect when you're dealing with Toyota as a company. I mean, you know that they're going to stay very consistent to what they say they're going to do. They're going to think long term. Look, you may or may not like necessarily all the time they approach. You might say that they're rigid in certain things, but you know what to expect. And and I wanted to bring that point of knowing what to expect and the element of trust, right? Because my personal impression is that a lot of time it, it does boil down to that, that, that trust is also with do I know what to expect? Because if I know what to expect, of course, I you know trust is there. But if if you know if somebody orders a hundred and then crisis hits, then it lowers it to fifty. Then me as a producer, then I mean, how am I gonna balance my balance sheet, right? So then, of course, I need to make. And then if that person again orders a hundred, well, sorry, right? I cannot build that fifty just overnight, right? Just because of you. So. I'll, I'll pause there. I just wanted to bring that as an example, right? Let me let me see if you have some something to add, and then there's a couple more questions that came up. Yeah, Radu, I, I do think that you know Toyota is a good success story in the auto industry about being able to build up enough stock to continue to build their vehicles when some of the other announcements we're all reading would show that other companies are having to shut down manufacturing lines. So, how do you build that trust? I'm, I'm a big believer in 
when we go through times like this, you know, it's going to require in many cases committed forecasts. That means that I can't shift on a dime and tell you I needed 100 last week and shift to say I don't want to take them this week. You know, there is that building of trust to make sure that we are working across the industry uh, to make those commitments. Mm-hmm. And uh, member is asking another good question, so I'll, I'll give her another show. In terms of the impact of bullweed effect and, okay, demand supply uh, gaps, right? And they, 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 there were some pretty significant swings. Uh, were there some solutions? Were there some hints, tips that, uh, that that you could share in terms of how do you manage that on a lower tier supplier level? I think her question is. Gosh, that's such a good one, memory. <laughs> I do think that's the challenge. And in fact, I'd argue that some of what started this whole chip crisis is that bullwhip effect. We had some you know, shifts in terms of geopolitical issues and people were building up buffer stock. You know, I, I don't know that I've got a, a great answer. I will tell you that we do start a lot of our forecasting, both from a tops down check as well as a bottoms up. How big is the industry? How do we think about our share of that industry? How do we think about tying it down to users? So that tops down as well as the bottoms up to make sure that we're giving forecasts that we can hopefully stand by and that are meaningful. But I, I will tell you that it is hard sometimes to sort through in a crisis how much is real demand versus how much is the bullwhip effect. I mean, we all saw that with toilet paper, right? I'm sure there are people out there still burning down their stash of toilet paper that we all bought during the pandemic. So it's a hard process. Um, And that gets back to the how much collaboration can we do deeper into the supply chain? How much can we both roll up our sleeves, share data, share information, share forecasts, share perspectives to make sure that the overall forecasting is not adding up more than the industry? I think that's just kind of a critical cross check, but no easy answers there. Mm. And shifting a little bit on on the topic of people this time around, I mean, we, we as a day job, we do executive search. There's been a surge in terms of, you know, asking for this Superman that kind of knows digital and knows, you know, change management and knows, you know, this and that and doesn't sleep as a requirement. But I, I guess, what would be your thoughts, Susan? What are some of the characteristics if you were to look you know, from now to the next five years, let's, let's not go too far, right? But what would be some of the key traits of the supply chain executive that, must have hard skills and soft skills, whatever comes to your mind first. Right, well, I'm going to start out with technology. I, I would find that I am continuously looking for people that have more, you can define it as digital. I put it under a broader umbrella. How do I automate functions in the supply chain? What are the best platforms to use, whether it is a warehouse inventory system? How does that tie back into all of the accounting systems? I think that I spend more time on technology platforms and how do we get more efficient using technology right now. You and I talked about tooling for supply chain intelligence. We're also doing a lot in AI and machine learning right now. There's a lot of really cool cutting edge stuff about how do you do machine learning to just grade out devices like this as they're coming back into our reverse logistics area that is really cutting down on people time. So I'm uh, where I sit in my career right now, I'd say technology, technology. And even if you don't have that as your background, continuing to keep your pulse into it, continuing to find out and talk to peers on what technology they're using. I do think that over the next 10 years, the biggest change we're going to see in supply chains and in the procurement function that I manage in terms of that contracting is technology 
being able to replace a lot of the manual functions that many of us still live in today. So I think that's an important one. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, I mean, we're we are actually doing a search now for a very large scale operation. It's, it's agriculture. It's not, it's not the most advanced supply chain, but the, the type of technology they're looking to bring, you know, IoT connected devices connected to the you know weather patterns when to water the plants the, the vegetables is quite fascinating and it doesn't I think a, maybe a mindset that is wrong I think or limiting belief it doesn't have to be expensive it's not always super super expensive it's you know sometimes the creativity part is the more important piece than the actual I mean you don't need to spend necessarily millions and millions on it I mean some are very expensive some are not if you look at the, you might know the World Economic Forum, we have a partnership there. They have the lighthouses and the, you know, the best manufacturing facilities. Some of those are using this industry 4.0, but in a, you know, not necessarily the most expensive, advanced. We talked about semiconductors. That's the most advanced, I guess, manufacturing, right? You can use it via a device. Like you said, you know, you have a device, you can link it to a, to a SKU, done. I think that a lot of that is, is happening. It's more a matter of also applying that creativity that is fairly consistent in supply chain to bring it to life, I guess. Yeah, Randy, one of the things we've done, I mean, we live in the world of IoT and connected devices because that's a lot of what we are rolling out the infrastructure for. And one of the success stories that I talk about is I think in my organization, we've been successful in rolling out test case small test case that then start paying for themselves and then fund the next test case. So as an example, how do I think about geofencing of some of my unmanned distribution locations. So I've got a lot of garages that we are stocking. And so how do I know that equipment's been dropped off at that location? So we can update kind of the inventory flows and know where that inventory is sitting. There's a lot of good, you know, IoT geofencing notifications where you don't even have to have active IoT sensors on all of the inventory. And you can prove those out with some pretty small dollars, have them pay for themselves by not needing a person at that location, and then take that savings and roll it into the next IoT stuff. So I'm with you. It doesn't have to be expensive. You can do it on a piece-by-piece -piece basis and have it self-funding. And that's where I think it's kind of fun to start playing with IoT. And with a rollout of 5G coming and a lot of the connected devices and sensors, all based on chips, I might add, that we're going to be rolling out over the next couple of years. I think the job is going to get really fun to use that creative brain to say, okay, what out of my supply chain can I automate? Where can I put better learning, uh, better automation? And how do I figure out how to keep our people that are highly paid, highly skilled, focused on the bigger problems and out of those manual functions? Yeah. I also want to bring the topic of diversity at large in, in supply chain. You're a great example, right? A woman at the top of a, of, a, of a role, a great role in supply chain. How do you also, what are some tips and tricks, I, I guess, in terms of boosting that a little bit, whether it's more women in supply chain, whether it's more, you know, I mean, diversity comes in many shapes and forms. Radu, it's a great question. It's something I'm pretty passionate about, and I'm sure many of your listeners are too. First up, at the risk of offending anybody, um, and since I'm a supply chain person, maybe I can say this, I think we have a little bit of a branding problem. Before I came into supply chain, if you use the concept of supply chain with me, I, I jokingly say, kind of had this picture of uh, knuckle, dragging, knuckle dragging warehouse workers. You know, no sophistication, very old world stuff, very back office functions. It's a branding problem. Now, I know that not to be the case. It's an incredibly exciting area to have a career. A lot of uh, very front and center support, 
of the company's strategy that is so meaningful. But I think the more we can continue to talk about supply chain careers to up and coming people that are picking uh, career paths, I think the better off we are. There was no such thing, at least that I was aware of when I graduated for a supply chain uh, major. But now we've got a lot of schools that have supply chain majors. And I think that it is helping us at AT&T hire more diversity. And, you know, we have an intern program that is um, just my organization. We do a fantastic job really uh, getting more diversity on that hiring out of school. And then are really working to continue to focus on building those careers and trying to put more diversity throughout the supply chain. I'm also a big proponent, given my background, of pulling people out of other functions. You know, I do think IT professionals are great in this job. I think people with finance backgrounds can be phenomenal in this job. And so go back to the, if we can fix the branding, make sure everyone knows it's a really cool, exciting place to work. And I jokingly say right now, since there's so much going on in supply chain, supply chain's kind of sexy right now. Everyone wants to know what's going on in supply chain. Let's not waste that crisis to continue to rebrand and let people that are picking those careers know it's a really cool, fun place to work and work on continuing to try to develop that diversity. Mm. No, and I think I'll pay you a compliment. You're a good example. And it needs more people like you coming out, sharing your story, sharing. I mean, this is also part of the big reason why we did this series and this podcast to showcase some of the great careers and some of the various backgrounds that ended up in leadership positions, right? Because there's no one path. There's many different paths. But that's... That's another thing that sometimes in supply chain, and I've said it before, uh, people are not necessarily shy, but there is a consistency that they are the type of people that get things done. They're not necessarily the type of people that go out there and tell, tell a lot of stories and go and yeah. blah, blah, yeah. blah. And yeah. They're not necessarily sales, right? So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're, not, we're not sales and marketing people by nature. Passion sells, right? So, I mean, you need to be... I remember vividly this conversation. I think I've told the story before on the podcast with this executive and he was a leader of a shipping line. And he, when I asked him, why did you do this for 25 years? I love what I do, Rando. I enable trade. I enable so many people doing business with each other. I put bananas from here to there. I mean, on different continents. And you can see the passion. I'm like, have you ever shared that, right? Because you're saying, I'm struggling to attract young people. Like, did you try sharing, you know, your own passion? Because that sells, right? I mean, it's it's so clear that you love what you do right so that's you know that's what you need to do go out and tell why you love what you do right because that will attract in itself and i I do think that it's very obvious to everyone today how impactful supply chain is on every business being able to deliver what their customers needs and so i think that connection point is closer than it's ever been and it's a great time to make sure that we are rebranding and getting out with those stories of passion because supply chain is critical for virtually every business out there yeah, absolutely. Even President Biden said it, right? So I think we are on the, the, the right path for sure. Final question from me, Susan. Piece of advice, right, from your your successful career, if you were to look back, what would be one biggest sharing, biggest lesson, biggest, uh, I don't know, career advice that you would give? Yeah, Radio, I, I maybe I'll point to the obvious one. But for me, nothing any of us have learned in school is relevant anymore. <laughs> I jokingly say that the shelf life of everyone's career is getting uh, no, shelf life of everyone's learning from school is getting shorter and shorter. And so I think all of us uh, being a continuous learner, this podcast is a great example. 
How do you keep reaching out to peers? How do you keep reaching out to people throughout your organization and beyond to continue to learn? There's so much great opportunity out there, whether it's new learning and technology, new learning and best practices for supply chain. I just find that the king that keeps me relevant is continuing to learn, continuing to grow, staying relevant with reading the articles that are out there, thinking about technology solutions. So continuous learner. I actually try to spend uh, at least five or six hours out of every week reading, training, growing. What do I want to learn? Where do I want to focus and really make that a discipline? Because otherwise you very quickly can become a dinosaur in all of our careers because everything is changing so rapidly no i mean literally i think what a, what a great point by the time that you start school to, to the time that you finish in two three four years whatever it takes whatever you're, you're studying I, I would bet that things have changed at least from some areas of technology things have evolved so yeah we need to keep learning relearning unlearning and you're a yeah, good example really. of that radu as we are all learning from you and all learning from your podcast so it's great stuff well, it's more, it's more my guest than myself, but thank you. I'll take that compliment. Well, on that note, Susan, uh, thank you very much for joining us and for being one of those great guests that shared a lot of insights and, uh, and great case studies. Keep up the great work. Uh, hopefully not too many sleepless nights. And, you know, good luck in everything that supply chains and supply chain disruptions will bring this year and uh, in the years to come. Thank you, Radu. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcotglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also, subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what, what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me a note. And if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business, of course, contact us as well to find out how we can help.